This, um, this Veterans Day weekend, we have a veteran and pastor, uh, Wes Van Fleet, who will be uh, preaching for us this morning. We have a sister church in El Cajon called Kaleo Church, and sometimes I preach for them, and sometimes they preach uh, for us, and we have a good relationship, which I'm encouraged by because I remember coming into the ministry in the 80s and 90s, and so many pastors and churches who were territorial and competitive, uh, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. I'm, I'm grateful that, that, um, that we can have a collaborative uh, relationship because we're all about advancing God's kingdom of, of grace together. Today I will be reading um, his passage. Um, this morning's passage is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under sun. However, however much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also... The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, 
And like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you welcome Pastor Wes as he comes forward? Good to be with you guys again. Uh, it's a privilege to be back, and un unfortunately, you guys get a sermon that we're right in the middle of, um, of our series, and so you guys get the middle. And up until this point, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've read through it, which I'm sure some of you have, is utterly depressing. Uh, yet, today's passage that you guys will get a little taste of, although it is utterly depressing as well, has kind of its first glimmer of hope in it. And so, Hopefully, you guys will be encouraged. So let me uh, pray, and then we'll get to work. Father, we rejoice to be your kids, that you have spared no expense in purchasing us for yourself, that you and your great love and mercy would send your own beloved Son, the one who is most precious to you, so that you can purchase rebels, unto yourself and lavish us with good gifts. And while this is overwhelming in many senses, on the other hand, oh Lord, we still live in a world that is mixed with the mark of your goodness and yet the mark of utter depravity. And so Lord, would you help us today to see your good hand upon your children, your good hand upon your creation, and your great promise to make all things new. And so, Lord, would you come now and speak through the preacher who didn't spare any positivity in such a wordy letter that is meant to make us see not only the darkness of this world, and yet at the same time, the good in it. So be with us now by your Spirit. Would you magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, and equip us for our week. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jonathan Edwards, he, he was this pastor in the 18th century, uh, considered by many to be the greatest American theologian of all time. Uh, if you've read Jonathan Edwards and got past three pages and kept going, uh, you've realized he is great in words, and he doesn't spare one ounce of his might in showing the excellencies of who God is. He, I, I don't know another theologian who has presented the beauty of who God is and what he has done like Jonathan Edwards. And yet one of the best biographers of Jonathan Edwards concludes that one of the greatest weaknesses in Jonathan Edwards' life was his inability to enjoy God's good creation. Jonathan Edwards, one who can write so expansively on the beauty of God, had a hard time going outside and enjoying the beauty of creation. Now, as someone who's read a lot of Edwards, and painfully so at times, it boggles my mind that a theologian who wrote so extensively on beauty could so miss out on enjoying God's good creation. And yet, how many of us in here 
How many of us have a view of God that says we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we do our best to enjoy Him and who He is, and yet at the same time, we kind of have this view of the world and good things that says we need to be very careful, keep arm's distance just in case we abuse those good things. I mean, how many of us live that way? Now, I think this may be because the Bible does actually command us and call us to abstain from some things, right? It calls us to abstain from sex outside of marriage. It calls us to abstain from abusing alcohol. It tells us to abstain from living a life of pride and arrogance. But is the word God's way of revealing that we're to abstain from everything? And only enjoy God? Or does it argue that we're to enjoy God's creation as well? Now, throughout Ecclesiastes, you have these repeated, uh, repeated refrains calling us to go and do like Matt read, to enjoy bread and wine and our spouse and work. You see these in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 5 and in our passage tonight in chapter 9. Now, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, he's made clear that these things are not ultimate. We're not to grab these gifts and make them the end goal of our lives. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 2, he tried every single thing he could try on this earth and wrote it all the way to its end to see if they would satisfy. And he graciously stops us on the path down those roads that we want to go ourselves and says, I've seen the end of them all, and they don't. But then the preacher, at the same time, is telling us to go enjoy bread and enjoy wine. And so, so what is he doing here? Is he, is he really trying to teach us that we're meant to enjoy God and the good things that he has created? Well, today we're going to look into Ecclesiastes 9 and see how the preacher expects us. And I'm going to argue that he does. He expects us to enjoy God and his good gifts in a cursed world. First, I'm going to set up a little context from the end of chapter 8. Look at verses 16 through 17 with me. It says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Now here the preacher is concluding all of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 8 and basically saying, you can seek wisdom everywhere you want and we have limited knowledge. We cannot find out, we can't figure out why God does every single thing the way he does. And that means we're, we're limited. It's as if the preacher is saying, I've looked at every different route to wisdom. And I have no idea how to find true wisdom. I don't know the answer to why God does things the way he does. Notice two times, or three times in those two verses... He says, man cannot find out. 
Now, this may be hard for some of us to swallow, but we're in an age where we have more access to more information than we've ever had. And yet, we don't know the answers to everything. In fact, I just read an article last week at the stats that are rising of people ages 18 to 35 who are so busy looking at their phones, trying to get more and more knowledge, who walk off of cliffs unexpectedly. I mean, if that isn't the greatest juxtaposition, trying to find more knowledge and you're not even wise enough to walk. Like, this is our culture. More information isn't the answer. We need to come to this understanding that wisdom is limited. You see, there's certain things that belong to God that we cannot find out. Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses says this. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So on one hand, we can't know the ins and outs of every single thing God does and why he does it. But on the other hand... God has revealed some things for us to know. And one of those things, according to Ecclesiastes 9, which we'll see here in a minute, is that death is coming for every single one of us. All right, happy Sunday. Super encouraging. Death is not prejudiced. Death has no favorites. Death is the common denominator for every single person in this life who is born. And while our culture likes to kind of shun the reality of death, acting as if that only happens to others as we make all of our big plans and all our dreams, the preacher is coming and saying, death is coming for each and every single one of you. And even more so, where we think death is more for those who are evil. Death is for those who deserve it. That's what we naturally think, especially when death comes unexpectedly. Listen to what the preacher says in verses 1 through 3. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event, talking about death, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, he just wants to sprinkle in a little bit of extra encouragement here. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness in their hearts is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. So the preacher here, he's coming and he's trying to make clear that death is no respecter of morality. It's no no more severe towards those who are wicked than those who are righteous. And in verses one through three, he's coming and saying that death comes for those who love. And for those who hate, it's for those who are religious and offer sacrifices to God just as much as it comes to those who could care less about if there's a God whatsoever. It comes for the clean. It comes for the unclean. 
the preacher makes clear that if you've been born, you will die. No exceptions. And although this is true over and over through Ecclesiastes, the preacher doesn't want us to just stop there. He doesn't want us to just be hooked on this reality that death is coming for each and every one of us. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Notice here that the preacher's tone isn't just grim sorrow. He, the, the one thing I love about Ecclesiastes is it's comforted me and I think a lot of people in our church because it's like one of those few books that you feel like you can read and you don't have to pretend, right? A lot of time you come into the church on a Sunday or you're with your crowded house groups and everyone's asking, how are you? And you're like, oh man, I'm just really good. God is good. Ecclesiastes said, says things like, I hated life. It says it's better to not even be born. Like it says these things that oftentimes we're thinking but we really don't feel comfortable saying. And he's trying to let us loose to say things like, man, life is really tough. And yet at the same time, you can have hope. Right? And that's what he's trying to do here when he transitions. All of a sudden, his tone is, yes, full of grim sorrow, but also full of hope on the horizon. He begins with this illustration by saying, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. So he doesn't just end his argument, you're all going to die, so you might as well go home. Like, go, go figure out what you're going to do with your life. No, but he says the living have hope. He's looking at a life, and he sees that life gives those who are living the great benefit of having eyes to see the beauty of a sunrise and a sunset, the ears to hear the delight of music, the taste buds to taste that which ultimately satisfies us at times. He's saying life is a gift as short as it is, and it's better to have those than to not have it at all. And then he gives us this strange illustration, and it seems really, really out of place at first glance. He points as he's walking down the street to this living dog and to a dead lion. Now, I'm going to be honest, I struggle with coming up with illustrations. I basically use Narnia or Lord of the Rings. That's, that's my wheelhouse. That's all I got. But when I read this, I'm like, living dog and a dead lion, that's all you got. Like, can you, can you expand on this? But if you understand Israelite culture in that day, it actually is pretty vivid of an illustration. You see, in that day, unlike today, dogs were mangy, filthy creatures that you didn't touch. In fact, I just got back from Indonesia two weeks ago, and this still happens over there. One of my buddies who's a missionary there, he's like, our kids really want a dog. But if we get dogs here, no one in the neighborhood, they live in this big Muslim neighborhood, he says, no one there will respect us. And so in Israelite culture, dogs were these nasty, nasty, mangy things. They were wild. And I, as I was reading this, I started to think, what if an Israelite was able to just time travel to today and watch our culture for just a day, right? 
I think they would think we've lost our marbles in some ways, right? I think they'd walk into the house, obviously be a little caught off guard by this dog, you know, running around. And then they'd see that a lot of times we actually treat people worse than we do dogs, right? I mean, look at the commercials that come on when you can't sleep at 2 in the morning and Sarah McLaughlin singing her little angel song and, like, everyone's crying, like, you want to give money to all these dogs? And then the commercial that comes, that, that, or not the commercial, the news break pops up and it's like a person in your own neighborhood was just shot and the victim is you know, survived by this many children, and you're like, man, I wish they'd get back to the show. We know this happens all the time. Like, we're not affected by the death of humans, but dogs make us really, really sad. If that's not enough, like, the one that boggles my mind is when I'm driving down the street and I pull up behind a car and the big bumper sticker says, dog mom. Like, biologically, that one makes me really confused. Like, I'm trying to think of when the doctor delivered and what that room was like, how did, how did this happen? Like, the point in this text is that dogs are dirty. And then here comes the second part, a dead lion. How, what's he doing here? In Israelite culture, the lion was the most respected animal. It was an animal of royalty. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, they were respected because they could subdue their prey in a minute. Their roar would cause the animal kingdom to flee. And yet what the preacher is doing is saying this, as mangy and dirty as this dog is right here, because it's living, life is better than even the most glorious animal that is dead. He's reinforcing his point that as bad as life can be at times, Life is a gift, and it's always better than death. And it's because life is a gift and death is a capstone of the curse. This is the preacher's point here, and he expands on this in verses 5 through 6 by basically saying that if you're alive, you have a gift. That's what he's trying to, to press this point home. But if you're dead... You're on the path to being forgotten. All of this shows us, really, that death is universal. He's trying to drive in this point that death is coming for us all. Life is a gift, but death is still coming. But then in verses 11 and 12, he's going to teach us something else about death. What we learn next is supposed to shake us a bit. The preacher says, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And listen right here. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So he's already argued that death is universal. But now he's saying, death is often sudden and unexpected. The preacher is telling us that we are not the sovereign lords of our lives that get to outmite our way through death. We don't get to plan when death comes and how it will happen. He's using this illustration about this 
fish and this bird to show that a fish doesn't wake up in the morning thinking, my plans for today are to get caught in a fisherman's net and be eaten. Or a bird who thinks, I will fly down into that snare because it sounds nice to be yanked up, my, my feathers plucked, and me be eaten by my captor. But his illustration is, this is true for all of mankind. You can make all your plans, you can get your 401k set, everything you think planned out, and before the end of this service, your life can end. Now, how many of us really think that way? How many of us really live a life that thinks that today could be my last? In fact, this moment could be my last. In, friend of, in fact, a friend of mine who preached this same text, he had so, said something among those similar lines. This was 10 years ago. And he said, by the end of this service, you could breathe your last. And by God's providence, by the end of that service, they had rolled out a lady on a gurney who did. You see, we don't live life as if death is in the hands of another. We live life as if we're in control, don't we? This flies in the face of all of us who think our plans and our demands rule instead of the God of death and the God of life. Now, I'll be honest. This idea paralyzes me a bit when I meditate on it. The truth is, I think of my little girls, and I think, what would happen if I were to die today? Would they be taken care of? Would they be loved? I think about if my wife were to pass away. I think of all these different things once you go down this rabbit hole, and it's, and it's dark, and the, the preacher is trying to make us think that way for a reason. But at the same time, it's not meant to paralyze us. You see, I think one danger in understanding this reality is the danger of consistently thinking about if death is coming. In a way, that's always looking over our shoulder, wondering when it's coming, and living a life that can't enjoy God's good gifts and His creation because we're so paralyzed with fear. And this is where the preacher in Ecclesiastes steps in to kind of point us back in the right direction. He's, he's given us this weighty topic on purpose to think, and now he wants to take us forward a bit. And rather than being afraid and living in fear all the time, he's trying to open our eyes again to the living dog, to this reality that life is a gift. That yes, it is short. Yes, it may end today. But if you have the privilege of breathing, enjoy it. In Fusion Church, the preacher, he, he structures this part of his letter in such a way that is so simple and yet beautiful. And, and it's really like fifth grade English, I think, um, which I didn't learn until I was like 27, so I'm behind the curve on a lot of this. But it's basically, he's got an intro, a body, and a conclusion. And in the intro, he's already set up this idea of death being universal, and then the bottom piece of the bread or the bottom piece of the sandwich or the conclusion is the fact that death is often sudden and unexpected. And he does all that setup so we'll pay attention to the meat. He wants to see what the middle is going to say. The middle in this way of writing is meant to stand out as, as the main point. 
And what he does here is he has set up this whole cloud of darkness. And now he's going to start poking holes in it so that light and hope and beauty can start shining through. This main point or this, the main body of this text, as you've probably already noticed, I skipped, is in verses 7 through 10. The preacher says, go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Like I said, the preacher has come and he set up this dark cloud and now he's starting to, to penetrate it with the goodness of God's creation. It's as if the, the foundation has been set about the curse of this world. And now he's trying to say God is still present in it and often present through his good gifts. Now, where the sermon had began with this reality that we can't know everything, right? We're, we're limited in our wisdom. We can't know why God does things the way he does. Now he's trying to show us something God has revealed. And it's that God's good gifts are given to enjoy. Some people take this passage and the other ones in Ecclesiastes to be sarcasm, that he's not really telling us to go and enjoy them. But the language is inescapable, that over and over, even in the midst of a vain life, we're commanded to go, to enjoy, to cherish over and over. Now, Paul comes and he pushes pretty hard against those who want to abstain from this. Like I said at the beginning, I think some of us are kind of hesitant to enjoy the good gifts of God, right? We think that real Christian life is just us and God. And we're afraid of enjoying the good gifts. But Paul comes in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, and he's going to push pretty hard against that view. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirit and teaching of demons. What does that look like? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Do you guys see what Paul is doing here? He's saying those that have the view of abstaining from the good gifts of God for the sake of feeling righteous or to justify themselves before God have actually adopted a, do a doctrine of demons. Like he's not using light words here. He's not trying to like gently walk us somewhere. He's saying if you think abstaining from God's good gifts pleases God, you've actually adopted a doctrine of demons. Now, listen, I do understand we can abuse God's good gifts. I believe that not everyone should drink alcohol because they can 
do it and only abuse it. I believe certain people shouldn't enjoy certain foods because they will abuse it. I believe there's a right way of abstaining. But Paul is saying in this passage that there are some who are always abstaining because all good things should be wiped off the table because God's the only good thing. Dane Ortland, he writes here, he says, the same apostle who wrote that he counts everything a loss for the sake of Christ also wrote that it is the teaching of demons not to enjoy sex and sushi because everything created by God is good. The preacher is trying to urge us forward in some very practical ways. With the backdrop of death here, he's trying to urge us forward in ways that we can actually see and understand in this very ordinary and mundane life we often live. But what does he mean? I mean, we get the bread and the wine, right? We're like, okay, I could see how those can be enjoyable. But what does he mean here when he commands that our garments should be white and we should not let oil be lacking from our head? Again, a lot of this is tied back to Israelite culture and if we were to do this literally, everyone here should be wearing white and drenched in some oil. But that's not what he's meaning. You know, throughout the Bible, there's, there were times where you think of Job and other people, when they're in a moment of loss or repentance, they would wear sackcloth and ashes. Well, opposite of that is wearing white garments. A lot of people directly tie white garments to purity. But in this case and many others, it really is a way of saying outwardly the inward joy you have as a follower of God. That to, to wear white in the preacher's day was really just to say, I am pleased in the joy of the Lord. Now, hold on with me for a sec. We're going to get really theologically astute here on the next one. With this not letting oil be lacking from your head, one commentator puts it the most simply, but get ready, this is deep. It's like washing your hair with shampoo. Smell good. <laughs> like, be clean. Like, to, to be a follower of God is not someone who just purposely lives a life of filth. It's a way of being pleased in the good gifts that God has given all these things are trying to show us and teach us against the backdrop of death that the world was meant to be a place of color, a place of enjoyment even in a world that's cursed. That somehow, especially as followers of Jesus, we can live in a world that is so hard and so dark and so despairing at times while also going to the market and getting some warm bread. And enjoying it. it it's, that's what he's trying to communicate to us. Now the preacher gives two more gifts and then we'll start to work our way home here. He gives two more gifts to enjoy until death comes for us all. The first one is marriage. Specifically here he's talking to husbands. Last night it was kind of cool. All of our women were gone at a women's retreat. Uh, which by the way, thanks for giving us your wife. Sorry she went to the wrong place. Our bad. Uh, we'll make that up. Uh, <laughs> so our room was mostly men, right? Men who were overwhelmed because they had the kids for six hours. They've never done such a thing. You know, they're looking like persecution has come upon them, right? Uh, but he's speaking to the, 
to the men here, and he says this. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Notice here, he, he doesn't say, deal with your wife, put up with your wife, cohabitate with your wife, but he says to enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Husbands, this means that you are to worship with your wife, date your wife, prod your wife to see how she's really doing, love her, serve her. He is saying that a good gift in this cursed world, and we know that marriage is under the curse, don't we? It's difficult at times. But he's saying even in those difficult seasons, enjoy her. And lastly, and maybe the hardest one for I think all of us to swallow, is the command to enjoy our work. You see, although work was cursed, the moment in Adam and Eve sinned and all of a sudden work would now be toil and full of thorns and thistles, it's still a gift we're called to enjoy. In fact, if you take a good reading of Genesis 1 and 2, you see that the way we image God most clearly, the way we're image bearers is most clearly found in our work. That's pretty crazy. So as we work, so we image the God who created us. And so this means, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for is there no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going? He's basically saying, work is a gift, and it ceases the day you die. Now, the truth is, some of us in here are like, man, I'll take death over my job, <laughs> right? Like, work, work sucks <laughs> sometimes. It's really, really difficult. But God has created into the fabric of this world this image bearing that we can't escape. And in doing so, whether you're a CEO, a stay-at-home mom, a soldier, a student, whatever it is you do, you actually, as a believer, are imaging God to one another. This is cool. And in fact, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're imaging God to one another at work. But especially for the Christian, this is something that sets us free in the workplace. And even more so, we don't work just for our boss's pleasure. No, Paul comes in Colossians 3.23, and most scholars, good scholars, do a good job of arguing that Paul has in mind this exact verse in Ecclesiastes because of the similar language. Paul says, whatever you do, right? Same thing in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not unto men. And so in a sense, although we have bosses, we have a new boss. At the end of the day, in all of our failures and all our successes, we enjoy our work because at the end of the day, we hand it to the Lord. And we say, this is for you. You can pay for all the failures. You've already done so. And you can glorify yourself through all the successes. Part of the gift of work is that we're presenting it each day to the Lord of glory. Now notice that all these things, eating, drinking, enjoying life, enjoying your spouse, enjoying work, all of them are everyday things, aren't they? A lot of us have this view of Christianity that we have to go do something radical. We have to sell our house, we have to sell everything, and do something extraordinary for God to be pleased. And yes, he does call some of us to that. 
But in these good gifts, God is really just trying to show us that he's placed his fingerprint right in front of all of us. He's saying you don't have to go far to find bread. You don't have to go far to find spout, find your spouse. Although some of you are still single and I know the difficulty of that. And that's a whole nother world of difficulty in a cursed world. You don't have to go far to find the workplace. All of these things are near so that we could enjoy our God. But where some of us are paralyzed by the suddenness of death, some of you in this room have been cringing the whole time I've been talking because you're afraid that someone might just grab onto this message and enjoy the good gifts so much that they'll downward spiral and forget about God for the sake of enjoying God's good creation. In fact, I could see the three or four men in my church last night wiggling during this portion thinking he's setting everyone up for failure. And I'll be honest with you, at our church at Kaleo and El Cajon, we have preached over the last 10 years continuously a warning not to over-enjoy God's good gifts. We, in the fashion of Tim Keller, have made very clear that good gifts make bad gods. But I'm not going to do that in this sermon because I think a majority of us have a hard time enjoying what's actually good. We're so scared of abusing good things that we never get around to enjoying this massive world that God created and said was good. We're afraid of it. And so we're always living in sorrow and despair while right in front of us are things that God himself has given for our own enjoyment so that we would know him better. Now, I'm going to argue from two passages why I think this is clear in the scriptures. Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, as a Christian, no one goes to the beach or goes to the mountains and starts to see the sunset and just says, that's a really nice sunset. I can go home now. No, someone who knows that God is the creator of all things looks at that sunset and looks past the sunset to the God who created and says, what a good God. That yesterday on November 9th, that sunset looked completely different than it did today on November 10th. What a creative and magnificent God to create something so different for my own enjoyment and my own pleasure. And I'm going to enjoy him more because of it. Now, the, the text that most people use to kind of pit God against his good creation, I think, in fact, is often misinterpreted, and I'm going to try to show that now, and it's Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is the beginning of Paul's polemic to show that unregenerate people, those who have not believed in Jesus, who do not have new hearts and the affections to actually believe in him and follow him, have lived a life of enjoying and abusing the creation of God without ever acknowledging that God is true. In Romans 1.25, he paraphrases and he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. You see, Paul is not telling us to avoid created things here. Paul is making an argument for those who do not believe 
who use God's good gifts without acknowledging and worshiping God. But for the regenerate man or woman or child who believes in Jesus, all of a sudden you have a new mind and new eyes to rightly see God's good creation as from Him and reverses this process so that now when you do see a sunset or you enjoy good gifts, now you say, praise be to the God of all good creation because He is worthy of my worship. That's what Paul is trying to do here. Bread and wine can now be enjoyed in a way that moves us to better understand who God is. All of God's good creation for the Christian is opened up to be enjoyed. I mean, that's great news to me. I love that. The truth is, you can go to a restaurant after church today. You can sit across from a friend who doesn't believe in Jesus, and you can enjoy your food in a way they can't. That's a gift. This means that tickle fights with your kids, morning coffee, even with cream, the sun reflecting off of the ocean, God's good creation, all of it isn't meant to be avoided, but to be embraced. And all of these things come to a climax in the life of Jesus. Jesus was the only person in all of history who entered into this world and wouldn't be surprised by the suddenness of death. No, he came knowing the day he would die. Listen to John 10, 18. He says, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. You see, even though Jesus knew the day he would die, he wasn't paralyzed by the fact that death was coming. He wasn't looking over his shoulder all the time, afraid of when they would capture him. But on the other hand, he wasn't afraid to enjoy God's good gifts. He didn't say, well, you know, I came here to die only. It's just me and the Father, so I'm just going to live out here in the dirt. No, he ate and he drank and he enjoyed friendship. One commentator says it so shortly and yet so perfectly. He says, Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors. In John 2, Jesus goes to a wedding and turns water into grape juice. Or wine, right? It says the choicest wine. And you can get upset at me, but I'm going to argue he drank it, believe it or not. In fact, if you just read the Gospel of Luke, Luke purposely structures all of his narrative around meals. This is a Gospel full of Jesus eating and drinking over and over, and it's trying to show us that Jesus didn't avoid the good gifts, neither did he abuse them. He saw them as a gift from his Father to enjoy so that he, too, could show off to his people. And it's because Jesus loved his creation and he was teaching us how to enjoy it. But in John 6, John 6, he's going to try to teach us something vastly important. After multiplying a couple loaves of bread into enough 
to feed 5,000 men and their families. All these people are gathered, and Jesus meets their felt need, right? They've traveled a long way. They're hungry. Jesus doesn't say, okay, listen, if you're here to hear from a prophet like me, then worry about the godly things. You can get bread later when you get home. No, he's, these people are hungry. Let's feed them. But then he goes and uses this good gift that he has just made a miracle out of to teach about bigger and more beautiful things. He declares in John 6 this amazing reality that simultaneously teaches us how to enjoy God's good gifts while also destroying the fear of death and its suddenness. Listen to John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, Jesus is showing that good gifts are meant to be enjoyed, but he's also showing that all of these good gifts are signposts to him. When the bread of life let all of our sin be punished in his own body, He was freeing us from sin. He was freeing us from abusing God's good gifts. He was freeing us from not enjoying God's good gifts. And he was doing this so that we would enjoy himself. But at the same time, he was taking this great fear of death off of the table. He was saying, I know death is universal and I'm going to undergo it myself. I know death is often sudden. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to transform death into something that leads to life. That anyone who believes in me no longer has to live paralyzed by this reality. You feast on me, on my flesh by believing. And the moment you die, your eyes open to the joy of being with me forever. You may not have noticed it, but the preacher was looking ahead to Jesus' work on the cross in Ecclesiastes 9-7 when he said, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. You see, the cross has set those who believe in Jesus free by believing in what his body and his blood represent. This week I had food poisoning. In fact, our whole family was sick. (coughs) And on top of the cold, I got terrible, terrible food poisoning. And I'm sitting here meditating on this passage as I'm getting ready to preach it. And uh, I'm laying in bed and, you know, the stomach cramps come every 10 minutes and then I become uh, a frequent visitor to the bathroom. And as I'm laying in bed, I'm just thinking of this command over and over to go eat your bread with joy. And man, I was at the stage where like, you know, 24 hours in, you're starving. And you just want to eat, but you, you just can't. And I finally started to feel better. And my wife, because she's wise, starts to say, you know, you need to eat some crackers. Like start small. And I just didn't listen. And I said, I'm on a mission, babe. And so I got some biscuits out of the freezer, put them in the pan, and they started cooking, and they start to turn golden brown. And then as they're starting to get ready, she sees me starting to make some gravy. You know, I got the bacon grease going. Like, I'm going hard. Biscuits come out. 
and it's just in my head, go, enjoy the bread, right? And so I'm pouring the gravy everywhere, and I'm telling you, that first bite into that biscuits and gravy, I didn't just stop at the biscuits and gravy like, oh, yeah, that was good. It's great to feel better. It was, thank you, God, for sending your son as the bread of life, that you would use something so simple and ordinary. And thank you for biscuits and gravy. Like, my heart was so satisfied, and yes, I overate, and yes, I got sick. But I loved Jesus more and his gifts that day. I assure you of that. You see, all of these things are so, they're given so we can enjoy God and this life that we're given. It's short, but it's meant to be enjoyed. And to close, I'm going to give one more evidence that good gifts are supposed to be enjoyed. The book of Isaiah, a lot of books, but book of Isaiah, book of Revelation, give these beautiful passages of the new heavens and new earth. That God's going to recreate the world. He's going to make it new. And believe it or not, it's not going to be just us and God, like listening to him do Bible studies all day. That's going to be amazing, and I'll definitely be there for that. But all of the revelation God has given about our future when the curse is completely gone is a life full of good gifts. Revelation 19 summarizes a few of these. It says, verses 7 through 9, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. You see, marriage is still existent, just not between husband and wife, but between Christ and His bride. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, we will feast with the Lord himself. We will enjoy bread. Jesus himself, when he ascended, had told the disciples that he wouldn't eat. Or, sorry. Don't, don't quote that. He said he wouldn't drink of the vine, talking about wine, again until he was with his disciples. So that means we will fulfill Ecclesiastes 9 in the new heavens and new earth that day. Infusion Church, our good and gracious Savior, he's cleansed the table of death with eternal life and has given us good gifts in the here and now until we make it home. I'm going to close with a quote. From David Gibson, he says this, those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. The gifts are from the real country. They smell and taste and feel like home. Let's pray.